The Gospel of John begins in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So today we're going to look at God the Son. We're going to look at Jesus. And let me tell you, when you say, we're going to, I'm going to preach on Jesus, I'm like, oh, that's going to be pretty easy. Yeah, it's not. Jesus is, is, is such a central figure. He is the central figure for us that, that there is so much importance that we need to. And I love to, to begin in the, in the Gospel of John because when someone asks me, when they come to me and they say, I've never really read the Bible. I don't really know where to start. That's why I haven't read the Bible. Uh, where should I begin? I, I know what the Bible is. I've seen the Bible, but I, it, you know, you open this up. Do I start at the beginning? Do I just pick out a page to start on? Where do I go with it? Because it's, it's very complicated. I get lost. I don't know what's going on. Where should I begin? And most times, I will point them to the Gospel of John. I'll say, start in the Gospel of John and read through that. And then from there, you can branch off wherever you'd like, but start in the Gospel of John. Why? Well, part of it is these first five verses I just read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it's continuing. Because these five verses directly reference our, the central foundation of our faith. These five verses directly reference the Christology of Jesus. Why Jesus is who he is. And, and if, if someone is exploring faith or they're exp- wanting to know more about what the scriptures say then I want them to begin by putting their foundation in on Christ and in the gospel. And in the gospel of John, John does an excellent job of illustrating that. So if you've never read through the gospel of John, that's my challenge for you this week, is to sit down and start reading through it. You've heard all sorts of verses from it, quoted from it, and, but, but it's just so rich in who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And so today we're going to continue our series, God Is, and we're in the middle of our mini-series on the Trinity where we started with God the Father last week. Today we're going to do God the Son, and next week we'll look at God the Holy Spirit. And when we see in the beginning of the Gospel of John, we see that he's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God and, and if you read that first and you don't know that that's Jesus, that can be a little confusing. But then as you go down, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we begin to see he's starting to talk about Jesus. But talking about Jesus from the beginning, in, in, in this verse we see the persona of the Son has always existed. The person of the Son has always existed. He, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was always, he's always been there. The Son carries the same attributes as the Father, as God the Father. But what we'll look at today is that for a time being, he made himself subordinate to God the Father so that he could carry out the Father's will. And it's there that we discover who Jesus Christ, God's Son, God's only son is, and how what he did changed history forever. So let's just begin with a word of prayer before we dive into that. God, we're going to look at your son. 
your one and only son and what it means for him to live the life that he lived, the sacrifice that he made. And I pray that in this moment, if we've had a relationship with you for a long time, that we would be refreshed and renewed in that. And if we don't know you, haven't placed our trust in you, haven't made you Lord and Savior of our lives, Lord, I pray that today would be that day that we would see through the life of Jesus that we would know that it is truth and that we should follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So when we look at Jesus, we're looking at what we call his Christology. And, and that Christology is the study of the Christ, where, where we look at the person, the nature, and the role of Christ. And we've talked about God being infinite. We've talked about God being eternal. We've talked about him being the father and how every attribute of God that we're going to look at throughout this whole series is of equal importance and they all kind of touch off of each other and and connect with each other. But when we start to talk about God the Son, when the church starts to talk about God the Son, it seems real often that we get lost in that. And when I say we get lost in that, specifically I mean we lose sight that without the person of Jesus Christ, None of this matters. Without Jesus Christ, none of this matters. And we can get caught up in theological debates on this issue, this issue or, or, or a culture debate on this issue, and we take Christ out of it. We take Jesus out of it. And, and we begin to change who Jesus is. And what we see is a superficial Christology begin to arise. And that superficial Christology is happening in churches all over and it's permeating the church in its worship and in its witness. And what it's doing is it's watering down who Jesus is. It's watering down his attributes. It's, it's, it's turning into, as we search for relevance, a relevant, people-pleasing, tolerant, hoping not to offend someone, Jesus, we've created this watered-down version. We've created this Jesus that, that people can see a teacher in, that they can learn some life lessons from, but they don't want him to be the son of God. They want the savior. He's going to save me from my sins, but I don't want to make him Lord because if I make him Lord, I have to do too much. I have to change too many things. I have to live a a, a, a a life that gets me out of this people-pleasing tolerance. And as we begin to do that, as we begin to water this down, as we begin to move away from that, we find a set, a group, a culture that doesn't want to dive all in with Jesus. They don't want to dive in all in with who he was, who he is, and who he's to come. And a big part of that is it's difficult to reconcile in our minds the sacrifice that Jesus made for them. It's difficult for us to look at and say, no way, no how would someone give their life to go through what he went through for me. We have a hard time reconciling that. And what happens is when we begin to water down Jesus, we begin to move into uh, heresy. We begin to teach false teachings. And as Albert Moeller says, we live in a time where heresy is exhilarating. And what does he mean by that? What does he mean by heresy is exhilarating? Well, 
if you're like me, you love a good story, right? You love a good story, one that engages you. You love to discover something new. Uh, when someone says they've discovered something new and different, you, you kind of want to hear what they've, they've done, what they've found. And so when we hear that someone has found something new and different in Scripture, it's our nature to kind of perk up and be like, well, what did they discover? Might be something pretty good to hear. It might actually fit what's going on in our world a little bit better than what the Scripture actually says. And so we get excited to hear what this new voice has to say. And we see that someone comes out and says, God has shown me this in a new way that's never been shown before to interpret it to what's going on in our life today, what's going on in our world today, to fit our political or socio, social uh, agenda. We begin to see people take verses out of context and they begin to twist and turn everything that is written as truth and they turn it into deception. They get away from the central message of the gospel and lose sight of what is called the orthodoxy of the scriptures. Now, I want to pause there for a second and let you know that some of the things that we've looked at and seen for a long time or have been taught can easily be inherent and not scriptural. Meaning we've come to believe these things because we've heard it said over and over again because we didn't properly exegete the scriptures. And when we sit down and we look at studies and we look at commentaries and other things, we're not discovering something new. We're looking at exactly what the text is saying in the context of the time that it was written. And so you might hear somebody say, you know, this is what this really says, and they'd be right. So you have to, this is where you have to know the scriptures. As a believer, you have to get into the word, and you have to study it and know it so that you can fact-check them. Fact-checking is really big in our culture nowadays, so that you can fact-check what's being said. But what we need is confessional courage. We need to be willing to say, what you're teaching is not what the scripture says. You're taking us down a path that leads to destruction because you're taking us away from what God's word says. You're, you're changing who Jesus is when you change the scriptures. We need a confessional courage. We, pri we pride ourselves here as a church as a local body of believers who are going to take a conservative approach to our doctrine and to our interpretation of scripture. And whenever we start to, to study scripture, uh, uh, my goal as our church, and I, and I do this for myself, is I get into the scriptures and I see what it says first. I start to look at some, some commentaries that will help me begin to understand the, the breakdown of the scripture, what, what the, the original text said, what the original, original language said, what was going on in the time that it was written. We want to look at it in the context of the time and culture with, with, which within it was written. And then we want to look at it and say, how can we apply this to today? Because these scriptures, while they are very applicable to us today, they were not written today. And so they were re the, re revealed by God to the, the men that wrote them many years ago. But we can find application in our lives through the scriptures, even though it wasn't written in our context. And so we want to take a conservative approach to that. We don't want to change the scriptures, change what the scriptures say just because what is being said in culture. And you see that happening all over the time, place. You see that happening all over the place. 
we need to look and see how our world today fits inside this book, fits inside the scriptures. And so I think it's important when we start the Gospel of John and it says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, knowing that that's Jesus and Jesus is the Word. And this, this book is central to him. Everything in this book points to him. But sometimes we need a little bit of help to help us summarize or understand. Like I said, I read a ton of commentaries and other helps that help me break down the scriptures. And sometimes we just need a short statement that helps us do that. And last week I introduced the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to look at that a little bit more because the Apostles' Creed helps us. It's been defined by the early church as a, a doctrinal statement of our faith and beliefs that line up with what scripture says, that are proven not to be heresy and line up, for what, line up with it so that we can look at this and say, this is what we believe. And then we could support that with the scriptures. And so for, for time's sake, we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed and what it says about the Son of God today rather than reading every passage that talks about Jesus because then we'd read the entire Bible basically. And so we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed and what it says. And in the, in the Apostles' Creed, last week we looked at God the Father, today God the Son. This is the, the largest section. The majority of the Apostles' Creed is focused solely on Jesus, God the Son. As, and after it begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It then says, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into death. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The Apostles' Creed right there lays out the gospel of Jesus Christ in about ten lines. It's a great summary statement for us to be able to break down and then back look back at what scriptures actually line up with that. So the first thing we need to know about God the Son is he is the second person of the Trinity. I think we've established that. The second persona of the Trinity. You've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John 3, 16, this is the verse, probably the most well-known verse in all of scripture. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you've never stepped foot in a church, you've never read the Bible, there's a good chance you still know this verse. Turn on a baseball game from 1935, 1965, 1985, and somebody's holding up a sign that says John 3.16. This is the central verse of everything. And in it, it says that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This verse encapsulates who Jesus is and what his purpose on earth is. And, and, and as I've said before, the Trinity is three in one. Three persons, three in one, and each person is equal to the other. Each has and is and will always be existent. And so the first thing we need to see about Jesus is that before the incarnation, before Jesus' life on earth, the Son was already the only begotten of the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there. 
Jesus has always been there. He was eternally begotten, and he was not made. Why is that important to us? Well, when we say that he's eternally begotten and he's not made, and he's God's only son, that means that the person, the human Jesus that lived on earth was different than all of us. He was set apart. He was different than anybody else. He was fully human, but yet fully divine. And so because he was there from the beginning, we see that he made himself into a human for our sake. Him being different than others means that he's greater than the prophets and he's greater than the angels. And if you read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, it tells us that. I'm not going to look at that for time's sake, but it says, it tells us he has greater power than the prophets and angels in his person and in his message. Being fully divine, yet living on earth fully human, Jesus was able to perform some miracles in his, in his ministry that the prophets could not do. He also was able to live a sinless, blameless life. Has anyone else in history been able to do that? No. His message brought more power than anything the prophets had ever said. But yet, being fully divine, he was still fully human, and he made himself lower than the angels for a time, coming to be fully human so that he could live this sinless, blameless life that was needed for the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus wanted to reveal himself to, those, to, to the people that he came in contact with. And he wanted them to begin to understand who he was. So much so that twice he asked a question in, in the book of Matthew. He asked a question to see who others, what others thought he was, who they thought he was. Basically a, a pop quiz to say, who am I? And he says this to the disciples in, in, in <clears throat> Matthew 16.1. He asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And we know that Peter responds, you are the Christ. Because Peter recognizes that Jesus is set apart. And Jesus is different. Jesus is the Messiah. But then in Matthew twenty-two forty-two, 42, he asks a group of Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, he's the son of David. Do you see the difference? Peter recognized that Jesus was the son of God. The Pharisees, they just, they don't, they see him as, they, the, the, Peter sees him as the Messiah. The Pharisees don't see him as the Messiah. Jesus came for one specific person, purpose, to save. And it says that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And why is this a, a important as well? Well, he was set apart from the beginning. By being born of the Virgin Mary, he has a birth unlike any other, and therefore he's going to live a life unlike any other. Matthew one twenty one says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people for, from their sins. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, names are important, right? Names are important. If you were had the opportunity to name your, your, your kids, you might have various reasons to why you name your kid, what you name them. For Mandy and I, we had a hard time with names because when you teach for a long time and you're a youth pastor for a long time, 
a lot of names are taken off the table very quickly. And so for us, we, we had, a, had a somewhat difficult time choosing names. For Annalise, we kind of knew her name right off the bat. Um, and uh, uh, I will tell you that regardless of your beliefs, we actually got her name from Disney. Um, it is, it is a, an actress that, that plays a role, and we just fell in love with the name. It wasn't anything other than that. There's no special meaning behind it. We just fell in love with it and said, that's what we want to name a daughter if we have a daughter. Brinley's a little bit different because we thought we would have a hard time. I mean, we had a very hard Annalise was, was named well before we knew we were going to have kids. Brinley got her name two days before she was born um, because we just could not figure out a name. And, and, and ultimately, we decided that, and every time we came up with something, it's like, oh, well, that kid has that name. They're, they're out. I mean, really, it just, or, or these people, we didn't want her to have a name that everybody else had. And so we finally just were like, let's put something together. And my mom's maiden name is Bryant, and then I'm Brian. Mandy's maiden name is Lee, and so we just took that and made Brinley. And we thought we were super smart. Like, yeah, that works. That's awesome. And it means something to us. That's great. And then every kid born in 2010 is named Brinley. So... But it means something to us. The name of Jesus means something to all of us. Calling him Jesus Christ unmistakably emphasizes that he was and is our Savior. When we call him Jesus Christ, it tells him that we are recognizing that he is our Savior. Luke 2.11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. His name means something. His name name means salvation. It means restoration. It means adoption. And I can't tell you how many people I know in my life that have struggled with fertility issues and having kids of their own. And they struggle for years and years and years. And then they get to the point and they say, you know what, we're not going to be able to have our own kids but there are many children around the world that need a mom and dad. And so they go down the road of adoption and they adopt this son or this daughter to be part of their family. And they create this beautiful family unit so that they could be mom and dad and show them the love of Christ. And I can't tell you how many of those people that the moment they do that within Sometimes it's like while they're going through the adoption process, sometimes it's within a year or two, then they're able to have their own children. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's, it's, it's them obeying. But, but this is the thing. When we become a believer in Christ, when we place our faith in him, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. But the only reason we can ever be called adopted sons and daughters of God is that Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He's the only one that is begotten by the Father. Hebrews 2.10 says this, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That moves us to the next section of the Apostles' Creed because, because he was born, conceived, of the Holy, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin Mary. Then he was condemned to die. He was to suffer, to be crucified, dead, and buried. 
and to descend into death. And I've got a lot of scriptures that, that, that take us through this, and I'm going to go through them real quick. But Luke 22, 23 through 25 says, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. He released the man, or, sorry, over to their will. Mark sixteen nineteen says, sorry, I'm thrown off on my notes here. Let's jump to Acts four ten. It says, let it be known that all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, sorry, we are thrown way off on my notes. Let me go to uh, Acts 4.10. Let me look at this. Okay, Acts 4.10 says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So he was crucified 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And 1 Peter 3, 8 talks about his suffering. It says, For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And we've talked through the whole gospel um, earlier this year, and you can read through the gospel as you read through uh, John, but you can also look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you can see that this man that lived this perfect, blameless life was then falsely accused and arrested and taken before Pontius Pilate and taken and judged and then sentenced to die. And he would go and he would... Wow, there it is. Today is a fun day. Can I just tell you that? Today is a fun day. But you know what? I'm amazed when I read the scriptures and it says that Jesus preached and, 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 and Peter preached and 5,000 were saved. Because that means they were saved. That doesn't mean 5,000 heard. That means 5,000 were saved. And they didn't have microphones back then. So they just had an amazing ability to um, project their voices, right? So if that happens again, then I'll just try and project to the hundred or so of you that are here today. And so, so he was crucified on the cross and he died. And then it says he descended into death. And some of the, some of the, some of the versions of the Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell. And that can be a difficult thing to look at and say, what, is, what does that mean that Jesus descended into hell? If he's God's son, did he really go into hell? And many scholars debate, I mean, this has been a, a debate for a long time, and, and, and there's not really a consensus um, that, that people can come to conclusions with, but there's several different ways. And one, one way is that many scholars believe that this symbolizes that he was placed under the earth after suffering and death. And that would be, Symbolic that that that's and that's why they say that it's that it, that he descended into death because we historically place people under the ground when they're when they pass away. But another interpretation believes that he literally descended in into hell to liberate all the believers from the powers of evil and death. 
And wherever you line up on that, whatever that means, and, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't have a secure answer on that. Um, as, as I study it, I have not landed on where I truly see what the scriptures say on that. Um, and, and, and I hope to be able to do more study on that in the future. But there's a part that I don't want you to miss. You can't miss this next part. Because even though he descended into death, he defeated death. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He was seated at the right hand of God to judge the quick and the dead. I look at what Matthew 28, 5 through 10 says. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The angel is acknowledging that Jesus was dead. And he said, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And then go quickly tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where there you will see him. See, I have told you. Jesus defeated death. He rose again. Mark 16, 19 says, so, the Lord Je- so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And 2 Timothy 4, 1 says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. God the Son's purpose, Jesus Christ's purpose, was and is to save. He subordinated himself to the Father so that he might come to earth fully human and fully divine. He lived a perfect, blameless life so that only to be condemned to die, brutally beaten, crucified on a cross, and buried in a tomb, when all hope is lost, so that three days later he could rise again and defeat death so that we might have eternal life. And then he showed himself on earth for a time, and then he ascended into heaven where he took his place at the right hand of God. He's equal with God again. For a time, he put himself lower, and now he's back. And there will be a day There will be a day, and Scripture says no one knows the time nor the hour that Jesus will return. And when he returns in that glorious appearing, he will return, and he will judge the quick and the dead. But those that have placed their faith in him, those that believe in him, those that proclaim with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, will get to spend eternity with him in a new heaven and a new earth. And how do we know that? Because this book says it. Amen. Scripture says it. It's easy to get lost in the Christology of Jesus. Because in the Christology of Jesus, there is a ton of theology. And theology is a big, scary word. Theology is a big, scary word. And it's easy to become overwhelmed so much that we find ourselves saying, all I want is Jesus. Don't give me all this other stuff. Just give me Jesus. I don't want to be complicated by studying all the complexities of theology. I just want Jesus. I want it simple. But when you say all I want is Jesus Christ, you are making a profound theological declaration. When you say, all I want is Jesus Christ, when you make that declaration, you're saying you want it all. You're all in. 
You want Jesus and everything that comes with it. You want God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We want all the theological complexities that come with it because they are all and all point to Jesus Christ. No matter what, how confusing it gets, how hard it is to wrap our minds around it, everything when we study Christianity, when we study God and God's design, everything points to Jesus Christ. He's the central figure in all history. Every moment before and every moment since points to his death, burial, and resurrection. And one day he's going to come again. And so it's okay to say, all I want is Jesus. Why? Because that's what Jesus wants. He wants you to say, all I want is you. That's what making him Lord and Savior means. It means you're all in. But you might hear someone say, I love Jesus, or I follow Jesus, and they don't. We must confess that Jesus Christ, that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Because there is a scripture, and this came up in our Life Connection group last week, that talked about that there will be a day that, that you will stand before Jesus and he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And that is a scary verse. I will be honest with you on that. What does that mean? What does that mean? I, I, I thought I believed my whole life, and then I, then I, then I get there, and it's department for me. You, you never knew me. Well, I think what that means is exactly what this says. People could say all the time, I love Jesus or I follow Jesus and have no relationship with him. I know Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I know who he is. And they've never confessed that he is Lord. That's the difference. People live their life thinking they're doing just enough. They're coming to church enough. They're, they're singing the right song. They're praying enough to get to heaven. And it's not about their works. It's about their faith. And do they believe and do they confess? Because our world is crumbling around us. Our world is broken, it's bruised, it's hurting, and it's needing Jesus. And many in this room are crumbling. Many on Facebook or however you're watching today are crumbling. You're broken, you're bruised, you're hurting, and you need Jesus. And we live in a world that gives us the answers through earthly possessions. It gives us the answers through drugs, alcohol, sex, money, food, possessions, whatever you want to fill the void that you have access to especially living in America. You can get whatever you want whenever you want. And, and the world tells us that, that we need these things because they're going to make us feel better. We need these things because they're going to make us feel better. And what the world is looking for is the moment that you show a weakness in this area, they latch on and they grab you. And they say, it's okay to feel this way. It's okay to use this. It's okay to do this because we've ma- we're making it legal. And if it's legal in the eyes of the land, it's got to be legal in the eyes of God, right? And then we water down this perfect, blameless life that Jesus lived. And we water down the gospel message and say, it's okay. He forgives your sin. You can still live the way you want to because you're forgiven. And Jesus says, I want you all in, 
Because our greatest need today is to experience the miracle of knowing the love of Christ that shatters all the capacities of our understanding. For us to understand that he went through what he did as the son of God, we can't understand that. Our mind cannot wrap itself around that. And Jesus says, as JD says, come on, come to me. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to get into all the complexities of it. You just need to come to me, believe in me, and give your life to me. And my question is, have you done that? Do you know that Jesus loves you above all else? So much so that he would come out of an existence of comfort with the Father to live on this earth and go through the trials of living on earth to go through the worst imaginable death ever for you. Let's pray. God, I pray that in this room or wherever they are, that they're hearing these words, Lord, that they see that there was a plan involved in the son coming to earth to seek and to save. to restore and to redeem. And I pray that we don't just say, I love Jesus or I follow Jesus. We say, all I want is Jesus. Everything I am, everything I desire, everything I need is in Jesus Christ. And in that we confess that we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And we want to make him Lord of our lives. So, Father, if there's someone in this room that's dealing with that, someone elsewhere that's dealing with that, I pray that you would just call them to you, that they would accept that and come to you. They would know the Son so that they can be filled with the Spirit. Your will, your plan for history and for the world is beyond comprehension. And it's because of that that we can live in faith of you. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a song of response.